good morning. This week, we will pick back up where we left off in Philippians. Uh, in verses 12 through 18, that was from a, a couple of weeks ago, we saw Paul rejoicing because the gospel was still being shared, despite him being in jail, despite people with bad motives. Paul knew that the church was growing, the gospel was spreading, and because of that, he was rejoicing. And Paul continues to rejoice as we look at this week's passage. In fact, those last five words of, from verse 18, again two weeks ago, are the beginning of the paragraph that we, were, we are studying today. It says, yes, and I will rejoice. Now, as I've mentioned before, as we look at the book of Philippians as a whole, we see the word joy, rejoice, or some form of that word many, many times. So where's Paul when he's writing this? He's in jail, in Rome, in jail. How long has he been there already? Roughly two years. Or we suspect about, about two years. And what does it look like for Paul when he's in jail? Well, he's happy. Well, he's happy, but what's it, what's, what physically is going on? He is chained night and day to a Praetorian guard. Now think back when your kids were little. For some of us, that's still happening. For some of us, it's been a while. But remember that clingy stage? That stage where they had separation anxiety anytime you tried to walk away from them, anytime you tried to leave the room? It was like they were attached to your hip, right? Remember trying to go to the bathroom and seeing those little fingers try to sneak themselves under the door? Right? You would hear them outside the door. You would see their little fingers trying to reach. And I'm sure at least one person in the, for at least one person in this room, it was just easier to bring the child into the bathroom with you while you went. Paul did not have the luxury of being alone even for an instant. And while Paul's an extrovert, it's not as hard for him. The introvert in me is like dying because it would have been with people all the time. How in the world could you rejoice? <laughs> and yet Paul could still see God in every aspect of the circumstance that he was in. He didn't see the guards as a hindrance, but as an audience. And he knew that he couldn't leave but neither could they. And so he continued in his missionary journey by preaching to the Roman guards. And that brings us to today's passage where we can look at even more of Paul's attitude and mindset. So let's read Philippians 1, verse 19. For I know that as you pray for me and the spirit of Jesus Christ helps me, this will lead to my deliverance. So why is Paul, remember those first few verses of the passage, yes, and I will rejoice, the end of verse 18. Why, what is the reason Paul gives for his rejoicing in this verse? He believes he's going to be delivered. He's, he believes he's going to be delivered. Deliverance, right? That... 
um, and, and why was he confident in that deliverance? Because of, because of two things, the prayers of the people and the Holy Spirit. Now take just a second to think about that. Paul knows that he will be delivered from the chains that he is in. He is at perfect peace while spending even more time in jail. But he knew that prayer was powerful he knew that the Philippians were praying for him and he believed in the power of prayer and that the Holy Spirit was with him. Prayer is very powerful, ladies. We can pray and God can do. Um, one of my favorite things that Pastor Dick was the pastor before Matt, um, and we were only here for a few years when, while he was here. But one Sunday night, he was preaching, and he said, in prayer, you can magnify the problem or you can magnify the Lord. I'm going to say it again. In prayer, you can magnify the problem or you can magnify the Lord. When you pray, what are you magnifying? What are you giving power to as you pray? Are you blowing up the problem to be this massive thing? Or are you confident in the power of God for your deliverance? from whatever it is? Are you making God bigger than the problem or are you making the problem bigger than God? Paul knew that God was powerful. Paul knew that the people were praying for him, but Paul had confidence because he knew the power of God through prayer. So my, my challenge, or, or the first challenge from, from Paul this week is how are you praying? Not just with joy, we've talked about that, not just with, with the confidence that we've talked about and those things we looked at a few weeks ago. Are you praying so that God has the power? And then we get to verse 20. So read Philippians 1, 20. I produce my eager expectation and hope that I will not be at all ashamed, but that with full courage, now as always, Christ will be honored in my body, whether by life or by death. Does Paul know, so he mentioned in, in verse 19 about his deliverance, does he know at this point what his deliverance will look like? No, but he knows that it'll be deliverance. That word deliverance means salvation and safety. Paul didn't know whether that freedom, that, that, that salvation was going to be freedom or if that salvation was going to be the death penalty. 
but he knew that it was good. And why was it good? Because his life would bring honor. Because Christ would be honored in his body. Paul was joyful in jail, and now he's showing that he has confidence in the Lord while he is staring death in the face. But he wants, what he wants to make sure to communicate to this church that has loved him and supported him was that he was ready to die for his faith. Stephen Lawson says all believers who knew for certain that Jesus Christ is Lord and Savior shared that same certain future. For those in Christ, death becomes the means of graduating to glory and gaining access into the presence of Christ. Such a sure hope gives us confidence to live day by day to the fullest. This certainty regarding death is liberating as we live our daily lives. Paul was ready to die for his faith. And then he makes one of the most dramatic statements that was ever written by his hand. So read Philippians 1 verse 21. Now, normally, someone would say they want to live a long life. They want to, to, um, to, to do as much as they can here on earth, and that, then it just, that it ends with death. But Paul reversed that. He reversed what others thought and what might have been expected. But this statement, to live is Christ, to die is gain, should be the heartbeat for every one of us in this room. To live for Christ is to live as God intended, with a single purpose, where everything you do is for Christ. It is unwavering, single-minded devotion to Christ. Paul doesn't know the future, but the passionate pursuit of his whole being is to know and glorify Christ. This is what it means to be a Christian. Christ is supremely important and everything else is secondary. Um, Galatians 2.20. That's, again, Paul, this, that time he's writing to the Galatian church, but he's saying that same thing, that it's no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. And then from Sunday morning, it, uh, Colossians 3, chapter, chapter 3, verse 4. When Christ, who is your life, appears, then you also Nothing compares to the surpassing value of knowing Christ and living for him. But then Paul says, so that's the, the to live is Christ. But then Paul says, to die is gain. Gain, to receive a great profit. To the believer, death is not a tragedy, 
but it's a triumph to be celebrated. At death, a Christian gains a more intimate relationship with the Lord. And so what are things we can look forward to in heaven? What are things you know about heaven? No more pain. No more pain. Sorrow. Or sorrow. Grief. Grief. Immeasurable joy. No more laundry. <laughs> Amen to that. <laughs> yeah, that's the greatest one is being in the presence of the Lord. There is no longer a barrier of sin between you and God. That wall is gone. Paul lived knowing that the greatest day of his life would be his last. This is how we must view death. Now, on this side of heaven, death is hard. We miss people who leave us. We have to remember that death was not the way that God wanted our lives to be. Death came into the world because of sin. And so when Paul says to die is gain, it isn't saying that it is gain here on earth, but for the one dying. So recently I was studying the story of Lazarus being raised from the dead. That's found in John 11. If you have your Bible, go ahead and turn there with me. We are not going to read the whole passage because the chapter is long. Um, but I would encourage you to read it at some point. This is a story of one of, if not the greatest miracles of Jesus's ministry. It was not the last one before the cross, but it was certainly the one that aroused the greatest response from both friends and enemies. And this story has a lot of great lessons that can be learned throughout it. We're not gonna focus on all of them. Um, but it's good stuff. Read it, learn from it, meditate on it. So Lazarus is the brother of Mary and Martha. He becomes sick. So the messengers, they, the sisters send a messenger to Jesus to let him know that his friend is sick. That same day that the messenger is sent, the, then Lazarus dies. Three days later, Jesus begins the 20-ish mile trek to Bethany, which was near Jerusalem. And in um, John eleven seventeen, it says, Now when Jesus came, he found that Lazarus had already been in the tomb four days. Now at this time in history, there was no embalming, no preservation of the body. And because of this, the Jews and many other cultures at a time, at the time, believed that three days was sort of the limit for the spirit to have left the body. Um, in fact, they believed that the person's spirit would no longer recognize the body after three days, and so there was no way they were going back into the body. I know, that's gross. Happy Halloween, right? <laughs> so when the spirit no longer recognized the body, it would depart to the afterlife, Heaven, Sheol for the Jews, other places for other cultures. 
And so we're at day four that he's been in the tomb. And then we're going to pick up at verse 32, or verse 33, sorry. When Jesus saw her being Mary, weeping, and the Jews who had come with her also weeping, he was deeply moved in his spirit and greatly troubled. And he said, Where have you laid him? They said to him, Lord, come and see. Jesus wept. So the Jews said, See how he loved him? But some of them said, Could not he who opened the eyes of the blind man also have kept this man from dying? Then Jesus, deeply moved again, came to the tomb. It was a cave, and a stone lay against it. And this, this is, I know a lot of people really like the Jesus wept. This one's my favorite verse. It says, Jesus said, Take away the stone. Martha, the sister of the dead man, said to him, Lord, by this time there will be an odor. That's my favorite part. <laughs> For he has been dead four days. Clearly, no one there expected a miracle. Even they knew that Lazarus' spirit had left his body. They expected that if Jesus was going to do something, he would have already acted. So there's great faith in that he didn't have to be there for him to act. So that's a good thing. But Jesus sees the mourning and the sadness of both Martha and Mary in their own ways. He hears what they have said to him. He knows that a small piece of each of them has placed blame on him. He is deeply moved and he weeps. This is one of those really well-known verses in the Bible, Jesus wept. You've heard it before. You've probably laughed about having it memorized. Let's talk about it for a minute. Why did Jesus weep? What are some reasons that he could have wept? He knew Lazarus was in a better place. He knew. He was going to bring him back to this awful world. Right. Yeah. So, so a lot of people think that he loved Lazarus. He loved Mary and Martha. He saw them mourning and he was sad for them. And there's probably some truth to that. There could be some truth to the comments and the blame being placed on him causing him to be hurt. He could be hurt by their lack of faith and unbelief that he could still make a miracle happen. But he was weeping for the tragedy of sin that brings about death and the glory of heaven that Lazarus would be leaving behind. Have you ever thought about that? Lazarus got to be in heaven for four days. There was no denying it even to the Jews who thought he had to wait three days before the spirit would go anywhere that he had made it to heaven. He spent four days in the presence of the Lord. Four days in the absence of sin and pain and sadness. And Jesus brought him back to earth to reveal the glory of God. Lazarus had to leave the perfection of heaven and come back to live in a fallen world. Now, Jewish tradition says that Lazarus was 30 years old when he died the first time. 
and that when he came back, he lived another 30 years before dying a second time. Jesus didn't bring Lazarus back to life just for this event. Jesus brought him back to serve on earth for 30 more years after that. Not as a punishment for Lazarus, but as a gift. To live is Christ. But Lazarus also lived his life knowing full well the idea that to die is gain. Take a minute and think with me about how that might have changed how he lived his life. Do you think it changed his attitude about death? Did it make it easier for him to rejoice when someone died? Did it make him live his life with more joy and peace and confidence because he knew what was to come? Do you think he shared his experience with other people, his sisters, his neighbors, his friends? He's believed to have walked the earth for 30 more years after this. And I imagine that he lived his life as the precious gift it was, knowing that he was alive for Christ to be glorified. But I also imagine he smiled every day at the knowledge of what was waiting for him. He would have lived his life those last 30 years with such joy because he knew what was coming. So what's holding you back from that joy and peace and confidence in, life, in the life that is to come? Why don't we think with joy about our deaths and what is to come in heaven? What is holding you back from knowing with confidence that you will be going to heaven someday? Ladies, if you don't have that confidence, talk to me. Talk to Elizabeth. Talk to one of the elders, the pastors, even the pastor's wives if you're more comfortable. Talk to someone and let us help you get that confidence that you will be able to walk into heaven and into the presence of the Lord. That you can have the feeling that Paul is conveying when he says, to live is Christ, to die is gain. We have to believe it, we have to confess it, and we have to live it. We have to live with this balance of looking forward to heaven while still living our lives to glorify God. And this is what Paul was facing as well. And so Philippians, back to Philippians chapter 1, verse 22. Paul is facing a dilemma. He acknowledges that his life might be spared, but he is also beyond excited about seeing the Lord and a victory in the courtroom might just be a disappointment to him. But Paul knows this, that even if he is disappointed in this way, he will continue living in his ministry for Christ, going and preaching. Because more will hear, more will be saved, more will get to see Jesus face to face, 
and God will be glorified. Paul doesn't know what to choose, so it's a good thing it's not Paul's choice to make. But this is the dilemma that we also face when someone close to us dies. We are pulled in two directions, wanting them here with us, but wanting them to also be in heaven. Um, Philippians 1, 23 through 24. Paul says he is hard-pressed. The image that he's conveying here is one of, of him walking down a road between two walls that are pushing in on both sides. Death is on one side, the chance to be with the Lord, and life is on the other, the chance to continue serving the Lord. And then it says, but... Um, I am hard-pressed between the two. My desire is to depart and be with Christ. That word desire is a strong affection, a deep longing. It's not a passing whim, but a burning passion. And that the depart, it's another intense word meaning to loosen something. It gives the picture of a ship tied to a dock. And that the rope, uh, a sailor loosens the rope so that the ship can be released. Paul sees his life winding down. He sees his rope being loosened. Not that the rope is released yet, but he can feel it being untied. He knows, though, that it is better for the church if he remains. So Paul will deny himself his greater desire for the spiritual good of the church. It is a decision between what I want and what is best for others. Very much better versus more necessary. Self-desire versus self-sacrificing. But Paul has this dilemma, but then he tells us in verses 25 and 26, he knows what will happen. So Philippians 1, 25 through 26. He is convinced of this, convinced, firmly persuaded by a strong argument. He knows that his thinking is sound. But he's taking on the attitude of a servant here. So that the Philippian church can grow in joy and in the Christian life. He wants to teach them more about Jesus, give them a longing for him, for his story, but also for the way the Old Testament applies to their lives. He wants them to know scriptures and to live it out. Paul knows that God is keeping him alive to bring the church closer to God. We need to honor that. We need to hunger for the word. We need to make it a priority, not just to read it, but to be changed by it. It needs to be our passion and our life live as Christ, but to die as gain. 
that while we're living, we need to live for Christ. Now you're dismissed to your small groups.